When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello folks, Dominic here. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 184b, Feeding the Fighters. This is a side episode. It does not affect the main narrative, but it has some extra information that I think is interesting and which I want to share with you. If you are just here for the main story, feel free to skip this one. But if you want to learn more about the ancient Egyptian army and its background operations, stick around and let's explore. Around 1300 BCE, the king of Egypt was Men Ra Seti I. He had inherited power from his father, Ramesses I, a man who, prior to gaining the throne, had spent time in the Egyptian army. Ramesses I, or Paramesu, had been a prominent general and administrator in the Egyptian government, and during the reign of Horemheb, another general turned pharaoh, Paramesu had gained prominence and become the designated heir. As a result, the new generation of Egyptian rulers had a strong background in the armed forces. They had been administrators and prominent officials prior to gaining the throne. With that in mind, it's perhaps not surprising that we get a great deal of information about military operations during this period. Not just the kings, but also the officers and soldier class. We have records that describe their supplies, how they organised food and important pieces of equipment. We also have letters from prominent officers dealing with business in different parts of the country. In this episode, I want to dive into some records that I think are quite interesting. To begin with, let me set the scene. Most of the activity I'm about to describe takes place in the north, Specifically, the Egyptian delta, that vast green expanse where the Nile Valley fans out to form a great triangle. The Nile Delta, around 1300 BCE, was a lot smaller than it is now, and the Mediterranean Sea came much further inland. But across this region, the Egyptians had built towns, cities, and even fortresses to guard the waterways and the coastal regions. And around 1300 BCE, texts art, and archaeology reveal a thriving area of activity, with a particular emphasis on the military. In the last episode, we met the soldiers who served in the royal army, the infantry, the archers, and the auxiliaries, who formed the main battle force of a royal expedition. Now, I'd like to introduce one of the officers. Every army needs officers. They turn a rabble of disorganized men into a cohesive, effective unit and a capable officer can be the linchpin of a military group, giving them leadership, guidance, and making sure they get what they need. The Egyptian army was the same. We have abundant records for various titles, relating to officers and overseers of distinct units and regions. We also hear about the bureaucrats. For example, in the early 19th dynasty, we have a stealer belonging to a man named Usur Hat. Usur Hat or Osiris is foremost, 
was the scribe for a military company. In this role, he would have been responsible for communications and organization, gathering supplies and things like that. Usurhat dedicated a stone stealer to his mother. This stealer survives, and it records a couple of details about his career. The text mentions, quote, A stealer made by the scribe of the company of Menma'atra, Seti I. The company's name is Amun is protector of the king's army. The scribe Usarhat makes it for his mother, the chief of the royal apartments and singer for Amun, named Wajet Renpet. It is her son who perpetuates her name. End quote. It's just a small record, but it gives us a tiny hint at an ancient family, and a man who was involved in military life and some of his priorities. Apparently, Usarhat was the scribe for an army company, approximately 200 to 250 men. These soldiers would have lived and worked together, and they formed a distinct unit with their own identity. The name of the company is Amun is Protector of the Army, which might imply that this company of troops came from the south, around Waset or Thebes, the great city of Amun. That is speculative, but it's nice to have these references to individual companies. Usahat dedicated this stealer at the great necropolis of Abydos, a sacred site for the god Osiris, so we get a sense of him invoking the king of the dead for the benefit of his mother, Wajet Renpet. Was the mother sick, or perhaps close to death? Maybe. She's probably still alive, because Usarhat does not use the phrases or epithets that are associated with the dead. For example, he does not call her Ma'acheru, or true of voice. So Wajet Renpet was probably still alive, but maybe she was looking ahead to the future, or maybe she was sick, and Usarhat dedicated the stealer for her recovery. We can only guess, but this stealer is a nice introduction to the business of the army officers. They are not living in their own little bubble, they are still part of the wider society, and they have the normal concerns of any soldier in war or in peace. Usarhat was the scribe for a company, a group of 200 to 250 men. But he wasn't the commander of that company. An Egyptian army company had a distinctive officer at its head. These officers were called standard bearers. The standard bearer, or chai serit, seems to be the officer responsible for a company's standard. The standard, or battle sigil, was the emblem which a company used to identify themselves. Egyptian battle standards appear in art and archaeology, they tend to have an animal figure representing a deity on top of a small pole. For example, a battle standard from Amana shows a canine figure, possibly Anubis or Wepwawet. And other battle standards that we see in art show things like ostrich feathers, boats, and so forth. Basically, the battle standard identifies the unit, giving the group a distinct symbol to rally around, and allowing soldiers to find their company on the battlefield. The standard-bearers, or Chai Serit, were responsible for these emblems, at least officially. In reality, the job of standard-bearer was more complicated. The best comparison to a modern Western army might be a commissioned officer, somebody whom the government, in this case the king, has officially granted authority to command. The standard-bearers were not generals, not top-tier leaders but they had authority over a body of soldiers. As the commanding officer for a company, 
the standard bearer was responsible for their organization, but he was also in charge of supplies and overall management. And from the time of Seti I, around 1300 BCE, we have some detailed records for a standard bearer. A collection of letters written on papyrus can be found in the Cairo Museum. They record the work of a man called Mai Seti. Mai Seti, or Mai Suteki in literal translation, was an army officer. He was the Chai Serit, or standard bearer, for a company. He lived in northern Egypt, specifically the central and eastern part of the delta. And in the course of his duties, Maiseti composed at least three letters on papyrus, and these have survived to the modern day. Maiseti's letters give a fun insight into the operations and business of a company commander. The letters are a mix of straightforward instructions and also a series of complaints. He harangues his colleagues trying to organize supplies and personnel related to his company or to his overall authority. They're kind of darkly funny, and Maiseti comes across as a little bit of a complainer. But, to be fair, that might have been part of his job. To wrangle everything, make sure the business of the army was working properly, he may have needed to be kind of nasty. The first letter deals with interference by local officials. Maiseti writes to the garrison captains, who are operating in the northern delta. The letter says, quote, the standard bearer, Maiseti, addresses the garrison troops who are in the northern region. I have learned that you have been interfering with the gods' personnel in the island of Amun, but these individuals are under the authority of the royal scribe, Iuni. What is the meaning of you acting this way? Carry out your assignment properly. Do not be remiss concerning your orders. End quote. Apparently, local commanders in the Nile Delta were being a nuisance. They were exceeding their authority, or their instructions, and interfering with local estates. In this case, the officials were messing with personnel, quote-unquote, from a royal town. This town was called the Island of Amun, or Pa-Yu-En-Amun. Amazingly, scholars know where that town is. A modern site called Tel-El-Bal-Amun not far from the Mediterranean coast, was an ancient fortress and harbour city. Apparently, Maiseti was concerned with royal businesses and resources in this region. The main body of the letter is kind of bland. Obviously, something is going wrong in the vicinity of Tel Balamun, and Maiseti is trying to correct it. My favourite part of this letter comes in the second paragraph. Having complained to the officers, Maiseti now reveals why he is giving them strict instructions. You see, the garrison commanders were interfering, which was a problem. But the real problem was that these interferences had made their way up the chain of command. As he wraps up his message, Maiseti lays out the situation. Quote, By Amun and the ruler, life, prosperity, health. If I learn that you have further interfered with the gods' personnel, I shall severely reprimand you. I do this because the officials of Pharaoh, Life, Prosperity, Health, are reprimanding me personally. End quote. I'm sure any military personnel, or even office employee, can instantly identify with this problem. My seti, the commanding officer, is raising hell about a situation, not because he necessarily cares, 
but because the problem has gotten out of hand, and now his commanders are breathing down his neck. The muck, as they say, rolls downhill from the higher levels of authority, and with Pharaoh's representatives harassing him, my seti has no choice but to crack the whip. It's a little bit funny, and a simple reminder, human behaviour and organisations have barely changed. The second letter also deals with human resources, quote-unquote. In this case, Maiseti writes to a local officer, complaining about his abuses of authority. The letter says, quote, The standard-bearer, Maiseti, addresses the soldier, Hat. What is the reason for apprehending the labourers who were in location unknown? Did I tell you to apprehend them? My arrest orders are spelled out in writing. You are only to arrest those whom I told you to apprehend. Have you done this to humiliate me? When the letter reaches you, you shall investigate this thing that you have done, and put matters right. Take heed of me. Do not keep hold of those labourers any longer. End quote. This time, one of my city's own soldiers had gone beyond his instructions. A man named Hat had gone to a location that we don't know, and apparently taken away labourers on my city's instructions. Unfortunately, he had taken the wrong ones, or perhaps taken too many. This reflected poorly on my city's leadership, and the standard bearer was furious. My city demanded that Hut resolve the issue and put everything right, immediately. The letter continues, quote, Another matter. Please round up the soldiers who are in the villages in your district. If you let any soldiers of the army linger in the villages, beware. Keep the soldiers occupied until I reach Memphis. Do not let any of them linger in your northern districts. Let your attention be directed towards especially fine men, and give heed to your orders that I have submitted to you. Procure an especially good crew. End quote. The human resources issue goes further. Now, Mike Seti orders Hart to gather up soldiers from the northern regions. He is to muster all the troops under his authority for my city's inspection. It's not clear why this was happening, but maybe there was a big project, like one of Seti's campaigns, underway. Whatever the cause, my city was responsible for mustering troops. He sent Hutt to organise it. Letters like these give us insights to the organisation and the economic situation of the North. Apparently, soldiers and labourers together came under the authority of military officials. Maiseti could order them around, requisition them from towns and estates, and generally use them as he saw fit. Granted, there may be some larger context going on that we have lost. Maybe he was acting under orders from the generals or the higher-ups. At the very least, this kind of organisational information helps us to understand. For the ancient Egyptians, there was very little difference between a soldier and a labourer. Both groups operated under the same general umbrella. They went to the same places, worked on similar jobs, and obeyed the same officials. In times of war, the soldiers might head out for different roles, but in times of peace, well, everyone works, no one quits. Welcome to the Roughnecks. We have three letters total surviving from my city's office. The final one shows the standard bearer at his most overbearing. Again, Maiseti is organising troop movements. 
In this case, he is organizing the movement of prisoners, aka living captives or slaves. The officer says, quote, The standard bearer, my seti, writes to the overseer of tax or levying. I have sent you this letter to say, Regarding the message that I sent, saying, Move the day after tomorrow. Take special care. Do not move your prisoners until word is sent to you. When royal officials come to fetch the prisoners who are on your island, you will be sent word, saying, Come with them. And you will be vigilant in bringing your reserves. Do not allow even one captive who is in your charge to be left out and asked for. Beware of seeking for yourself even one day of life, or you will die under my hand. End quote. This letter reads like a commander reaching the end of his patience. That final flourish, do what I say or I'll kill you myself, hits hard. You can imagine the standard bearer getting sick of these organizational issues, and he pulls out everything for this important project. Get the prisoners or slaves together, ASAP, and do not hesitate. Here is your deadline, now get it done. You don't do your job, I'll kill you myself. It's hard to know whether Mycetes' threat was genuine. The ancient army commanders may have had life or death authority over their subordinates. But that's a bit unclear. We do know from the city of Amana that sometimes people were tortured or executed by military officials. Back in episode 129, Hard Knock Life, we discussed cemeteries at the city of Amana. Some of the skeletons recovered there showed evidence for careful, systematic punishments. That could include penetration through the collarbone with a spear or dagger. The tortures were precise, skillful, and numerous. Apparently, Egyptian army officials, at least during the Amana period, had quite harsh authority. We don't know if that persisted during the 19th dynasty, but Mycetes' threat to his subordinates may very well be genuine. We can't rule it out. My favourite part of this letter comes in paragraph 2. After he issues his commands and his threat, Mycetes turns to a small secondary request. He says, quote, Also, please have another very good rope made for us, since the one we had has been stolen. Have another one made to replace it. Please take note of this. End quote. I love that. It's so innocuous, considering how serious the first section was. You can imagine Mycetes writing this letter, or dictating to a scribe, and getting carried away in his vitriol. Then, just near the end, he suddenly remembers, Oh yeah, we need a new rope. Add that to the shopping list. The guy sounds like a real hard case, but that kind of hasty add-on is classic corporate communication. My sympathies to Mycetes' subordinates. The three letters from Maiseti give an insight to the daily affairs and concerns of a mid-ranking officer. In charge of a company, approximately 200 men, the standard bearer Maiseti had authority over lower-level subordinates, and he could organize the movement of personnel in different parts of the Nile Delta. Things did not always go to plan, but really, no army in the history of humanity has enjoyed such luck. Whatever the messes that my city got involved in, 
these letters provide a wonderful insight to the daily business of Egypt's armed forces. So that is my Seti, the company commander. After the break, we have another couple of records. In the reign of Seti I, palace administrators, scribes, kept abundant records of supplies, personnel, and the deliveries of essential goods. Some of these related to the army and to army equipment. And after the break, I'd like to take a quick look at some of these records. Would you like to know more? Stick around. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to the army of ancient Egypt, art and archaeology tends to focus on things like weapons, equipment, and the organization of battalions. But of course, an Egyptian army, along with its garrisons, fortresses, workshops, and towns, was nothing without supplies. Armies march on their stomachs. Logistics dictate wars. And in the age of Seti I, around 1300 BCE, Egypt had a well-organized system of military supply. Across the country, farmland and estates produced goods for the troops, the temples, and government institutions. Amazingly, the reign of Seti I has left detailed records of the army provisioning. A set of papyrus documents, now in the British Museum, describe the accounts and business of supply. From these texts, we learn about production facilities, like bakeries, and raw materials, like timber. Whatever the army might need, the scribes were recording. The papyri are long, with hundreds of entries. I won't read all of them, but just as a taste, we can get a sense of the daily business these organizations required. Naturally, the first priority for the troops was food. So let's start with the bakeries. In the third year of Seti's reign, approximately 1301 BCE, royal scribes recorded bread deliveries for the army. The deliveries came to the royal palace, primarily as sacks of grain, These were delivered from the fields and farming estates owned by the crown and serving these needs. As the grain arrived, the scribes recorded them, and their accounts are meticulous. They noted the type of item, the quantity and the weight, and even how much was wasted or lost from each delivery. As an example, one account goes like this. Year 3, the second month of Shemu, or harvest, around May, under the person of the king of southern and northern Egypt, Men Ma'adra, Seti I, etc., etc., the amount that was made from the harvest of year two, being the amount of bread for the troops, the Mesha. 
The delivery included one sack of emmer wheat, about nine litres or two gallons. This sack produced raw flour, totaling nine litres or two gallons. The flour made bread dough, weighing 372 deben, about 34 kgs or 74 pounds. Out of the oven came 31 akek loaves, each loaf weighing 12 deben, 1 kg or 24 pounds, plus some leftovers. End quote. That may sound incredibly dry, and I have adapted the language to make it more accessible. But here, we get a scribe recording every stage of the delivery and baking process. The wheat arrives from the farms, it is ground up into flour and mixed with water to make dough. The bakers carve that up into loaves, losing a little bit in the process, and then they shove it into the oven. From there, we get the final tally, 31 loaves for distribution to the troops. It's not clear how many people 31 bread loaves would feed. The daily ration for the soldiers is quite hard to pin down, and different scholars have different estimates. Some scholars suggest one loaf of bread per soldier per day. If that's accurate, then this delivery would feed 31 men, assuming the officer did not take extra. Then again, some scholars have estimated lower rations, like half a loaf or even a third per day. So the 31 loaves may have fed 31, 62, or even 93 soldiers, depending on your calculations. To be clear, the bread was not the only ration. The soldiers also got beer, vegetables, and meat. But this account only talks about the bakeries, so we can't say for sure. Let's go with a middle range, just to be safe, and say half a loaf per soldier per day. That would mean a single delivery to a single bakery could provide bread rations for 60 men at a time. Not a bad ratio, all things considered. Other accounts from the same papyrus record more deliveries. I won't go through them, they are mostly the same. Grain comes in, gets turned into dough, prepared into loaves, and then baked. The scribes record every step of the way, measuring the weights and the numbers on their papyrus. We have the dates, the names, and the volumes for every little transaction. It's detailed as heck, but I think really cool. Food wasn't the only necessity. Soldiers and labourers need tools and weapons, including spears, shields, hammers, and scaffolding. All of that required wood. And the papyrus accounts also deal with timber. The same papyrus in the British Museum has seven different sections recording wood and timber in the royal city. The accounts are a bit complicated, but I'll describe them as briefly as possible. The records take place in Memphis, or Mennefer, and they come from the royal scribes. The scribes, acting as agents of the government, visited a series of houses. These houses belonged to government officials, including army commanders, priests, and so forth. At each house, the scribes counted the timber that was present, either raw pieces of wood or even entire boats moored at the riverbank. Apparently, the scribes were conducting a massive census of wood that was scattered throughout the city. They were recording what is available and who had it, so that they could keep an eye on the resources that officially belonged to the pharaoh. We don't know why they were doing this, but the simplest explanation is that 
By keeping a record, the scribes knew where to get ships or timber when they needed it. The account raises interesting questions about private property versus government property. We don't have time to explore that, but these records from the royal palace give us an insight to the organisation of resources. So in these papyrus documents, we find royal agents, scribes, inspecting, counting and recording timber. Again, I won't read the whole thing, but here are some examples. The scribes counted, quote, In the house of Ruru, the king's scribe and overseer, there is a ship's mast made of conifer wood, 22 cubits long, about 11 metres or 37 feet. In the house of Wa, the deputy of foot soldiers, there is a post of conifer wood measuring 9 cubits. In the house of Nebnefer, the standard bearer for the ship of King Horemheb, there is a wooden beam measuring nine cubits. In the house of Pa something, a soldier on the ship called Shining Like Aten, there are support beams of conifer wood measuring fourteen cubits. And in the southern storage sheds of the estate of Amun, there are posts of thirteen cubits and nineteen cubits. There is ship's ribbing of 9 cubits, and timber planks of 9 cubits and 16 cubits. There is also wood for chairs of 26 cubits and 31. End quote. The accounts go on and on like that. The scribes record the quantity, the measurements, and the type of timber that is kept in private houses and storage sheds. They name the royal officials or estates that possess these items, and they even mention their postings if the official belongs to a ship or a military unit. The accounts are detail-oriented in the most bureaucratic manner imaginable. These papyri have hundreds of lines, each one recording a different person or estate holding pieces of timber. Again, the exact ownership of this wood and the houses is a bigger question, but at the very least, we can establish that royal officials kept a close record of high-value materials. They knew where the timber was, and they confirmed that with inspections. Presumably, this kind of careful record-keeping came in handy when it was time for a new project. If the king needed ships and the tribute or trade was low, the scribes had a backup. That would help the government keep the workshops and the shipwrights operational. This was essential. The army needed equipment, the navy needed ships, and the royal state overall needed this vital resource. So we get a sense of the royal palace maintaining a close watch on timber supplies. Naturally, they were always bringing new wood from the Near East, but if that source happened to diminish, at least they knew where to find extra. It's a cool insight into their bureaucratic mind. These accounts, recorded on papyrus, are incredibly dry, and only the nerdiest scholars go through them line by line. But they are interesting, and if you dive deep enough, you'll find lots of little references to different institutions or individuals. You can draw threads between this town and this person, or this workshop and this army unit. Again, it's all extremely detailed. But if you're interested in economics, administration, or the history of human organisation, texts like these can be a real goldmine. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this little discussion. 
we have covered the standard bearer, my city, and the business of an army unit. We have also covered the provisioning and bakeries that would supply food to the soldiers. Finally, we've got a quick insight into how the royal household kept a close eye on certain resources. High-value items like timber were always a necessary product. And through these records, we can get insights to the army organisation, its relationship to the wider society, and the essential supplies that they considered vital. If the royal battle reliefs and grandiose art are the front, this is like looking behind the curtain. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Next week, there is a public holiday in New Zealand, our newest public holiday, Matariki. So I'm going to go enjoy some time with my family, and I will see you in a couple of weeks as we continue the reign of Seti I. Take care. May your bakeries be productive and your timber always available. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here.